Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 546 for November 4th, 2023. Welcome back. Today we talked to... Uh, the professor of English at LSU, Robin Roberts. Uh, she was teaching when I was a student, but I never, none of the classes she taught were in my curriculum. But uh, she studied like folklore and folk life, and uh, she studied um, the, uh, the way New Orleans treats death. And uh, she's coming out with a new study on, uh, on uh, New Orleans in TV and film. So she came on our podcast talk about that, and uh, that's something both Stephen and I, um, we really like the topic of uh, New Orleans in popular culture. Yeah, and, and it's, this goes right to, you know, and I, I don't know if I said this specifically in the chat with her, but this goes right to that class I took in Boston, that religion and TV, but it's the way that the media, particularly TV here at Visual Media, but now nowadays it'd be streaming TV, but how does that alter the message or the content that's being presented to a bunch of, you know, viewers, right? It alters it somehow. Right. It's a very it, philosophical kind of thing that you go into, like, in media theory, media studies. That's, they study this kind of thing. And New Orleans is a, an American city, technically, but they always get treated as a bit exotic, kind of like uh, maybe... Um, Oh, well, uh, oh, Miami or Honolulu or something like that. You know, it's, it's both American and not American at the same time. Right, it's Caribbean so, uh, and it's European. It's, you know, yeah, all. exactly. Right, and African. Yeah, yeah. Super African um, uh, city. Um, so, yeah, uh, we'll be looking forward to our conversation with Robin in a few moments. But first, this week in Louisiana history... So this week in Louisiana history, oh, we need to add a date to this. So there's no date on it. So this week in Louisiana history, on some date, <laughs> the rebellion against Uyoa, I actually said that, the rebellion against Uyoa began with a spiking of protective New Orleans cannons. So what is that? That's probably, what, 1767 or 8 or 9 or something like that, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's right in the run-up to the revolution is what this is. Yeah. And this is... Um, you know, when France lost the colony and it got split in two and half went to Britain and half went to uh, Spain and New Orleans was in the Spanish half. Baton Rouge was in the, uh, the, the British half. So, uh, uh, you know, they, anyway, Uloa uh, was the Spanish governor and they didn't want no Spanish governor because uh, they liked being French just fine, thank you. Uh, and it wound up killing some guys that let a they were called the martyr patriots by, by their, uh, you know, by their, their supporter, um, their supporters or whatever. Yeah. That yeah, that yep. has been called by some by some historians kind of a an aborted revolution of sorts, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was it unlike the American Revolution, it was put down pretty quickly, and it, and it was not organized right. where you had like you had a slow build up to the American Revolution with all the the various taxes that were passed that the colonists thought were unjust, and you had. You know, uh, also a climate of disdain for the colonists. You had uh, quartering of British troops in, in colonial homes or continental homes. You had 
you know, basically what they said, at least the colonists, that there was no representation back in, in London. So there, and right. then you had the Boston Tea Party, too. And I think there was another Tea Party elsewhere, but the Boston was the, the famous one that comes down to us. So there were a lot of acts that led up to 1775 and Lexington and Concord. Well, with Enlightenment philosophy, you have the development of the idea of um, the state is a, um, you know, a, a product of the, the people. You know, it's and not the, a yeah, top-down thing. Yeah, the people's will, yeah. Yeah, it's not top-down from God through the Pope, through the King to us. Authority comes from us and moves up. And, you know, we saw representative uh, I mean a speaker of the House of Representatives uh, Mike Johnson talked about how God had put him in this you know the minute he, he got elected I don't, no no you've got your the power from the people you got in the, the consent uh, governed the consent of the governed I mean that's yeah <laughs> that's the yeah American the consent president. of the governed so uh, that's kind of a, this idea that you brought up before it's the difference in being a subject Versus being right. a citizen, and that's and, and yeah, Sheldon Rowland talks about that. We need to recapture the idea of being a citizen, not a subject. I just talked to my uh, ancient youth class about that today. Once you have a republic, you have to have civic virtue to be able to maintain it. All right now, for this week in New Orleans history, on October twenty seventh, seventeen. That can't be right. And maybe that's the one above. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's got to be uh, Uyo, uh, October twenty seventh, seventeen sixty eight. Yeah, here we go, November fourth, nineteen eighty seven. So yeah, I'm sorry, folks, I got the uh, the date mixed. They will be fixed um, tomorrow night when we post it. Sure, yeah, I'll try to be, straighten it out before I post the uh, show notes. But anyway, on November fourth, nineteen eighty seven, uh, Jazz is uh, legislated as a national American treasure. Uh, which is kind of remarkable given its uh, roots in, uh, you know, African American culture in New Orleans, and uh, you know the fact that uh, now it's recognized worldwide, and uh, they're actually trying to preserve it. So that's that's kind of incredible. Um, so there's a bill passed in the House of Representatives on September 23rd, 1987, and in the Senate. On November fourth, nineteen eighty seven, and I guess it was signed right after that. Uh, and that's now, not this, that long ago. Think about that. That's only no. thirty six years ago. Really, that's thirty six years. That's not like that's basically it's about a generation ago. It's not like uh-huh. that this was sixty or eighty years ago. No, this is uh, in, uh, in our memories. You know, I've got t shirts I was wearing then. Now <laughs> 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 uh, for uh, this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, we highlight the Bayou Teche National Scenic Byway. This is a shorter one, unlike the one last week. This is only 183 miles, so you yeah, could just yeah, yeah. say that you'd be pretty tuckered out at the end. But the duration is half a day to two days for a self-guided tour. The Bayou Teche National Byway has long been recognized as a travel corridor to and through important cultural, historic, natural, recreation, and scenic environments. It's located in a three-parish area of Louisiana that exists along the beautiful Bayou Teche, west of the, this is the Chafalaya, folks, the Chafalaya Basin from Morgan City through Franklin, New Iberia, St. Martinville, Bro Bridge, and on to Arnaville. Primary access to the Bayou Teche byways occurs from I-10 and U.S. Highway 90. So if you are interested, there's, by the way, a website. You can go to, I think it's the Lieutenant Governor's Office, but there's a whole big thing about the Louisiana Scenic Byways, including Bayou Teche, 
the one over right. the Detroit that it almost runs into our area, the Hill Country. In fact, it runs to the west edge of the North Louisiana Hill Country, but it's the so-called boomer bust uh, uh, highway. But if you go look on that website, you can see the write-up about Bayou Tesh and also, I think, see some video footage. So it's how it's we. We kind of had that uh, year we were uh, shut down with COVID and all of the festivals were canceled. We had to broaden our approach and there were outdoor venues like, um, you know, places where you drive your car through, like the Phoenix Byway. And so that's how we got started, uh, uh, you know, recommending these. But these are year-round. You can go whenever. And uh, so uh, that's even better in some ways. Well, and this, this is one of those things... We, you and I have said this before, but it bears repeating. Get out, listeners, at once particularly in Louisiana, but also in neighboring states like Texas and Arkansas and even nearby states like Oklahoma. But get out and see these, these state parks, whether they're here in Louisiana or yeah. Texas or Oklahoma or wherever, because the state parks really is, is, is a treasure in your in your own state. But here in Louisiana, they, they've spent literally a, a bushel of money. <laughs> I'm speaking hyperbolically, but they've spent bushels of money. To, to build these state parks and really to maintain them, keep them very beautiful, but also very welcoming. So they are great places, you know, to visit. Uh, you can go there and you can have, like, family reunions at these state parks. You can go, yeah. uh, you know, uh, various various groups meet at these state parks, like churches, girl and boy scout troops. Uh, you know, even even professionals go, go to these parks, and they have, like, weekend retreats and that kind of thing. And and mostly these, they're real affordable, like $2 yeah. a car or something like that, you know, it's, uh, yeah, and these and these uh, byways are near some of these parks, by the way. Like the, you know, right. for example, like Boomer Bust up here, and another one over here in the Delta, I think too. They're near these uh, state parks, so you can go. Like like Boomer Bust is not terribly far from, I think, from Bissonneau or Lake Claiborne, maybe, maybe Lake Claiborne. So you can go. I would imagine you know, that there's a state park within, say, an hour anywhere in the state. Even you, know, you are, there's probably a state park nearby. Uh, yeah, well, to... we should do a, an episode one week before we jump to the interview here. But there's there, if you can believe, are three or four state campgrounds on the Gulf down in the marsh. And you can this is way down below Venice. Now this is not even near Venice. This is wow. way south of Venice. Yeah, you can actually go by boat or by you know if you so choose or by amphibious plane or whatever. But you can actually go right up to the pier. I've seen the footage of these things online, and you can go camp at these. You know they don't have any cabins. But you can go and pitch a little pup town or whatever and go camp on the Gulf if you want to. So it's, it's kind of a clever idea if you want to get that close to the Gulf of Mexico in Louisiana. They're on the you know, some of the, what do they call the crow's feet or the bird's feet. You can go right there on the Mississippi River and camp out in one of these state, you know, campgrounds on, on the river. And most of these campgrounds, they may have cabins. If not, they'll have um, places to pitch a tent. So they'll usually have bathrooms and showers and Stuff like that. And a lot of them also have, even like these little campgrounds, they've got these uh, yeah. barbecue pits, so you can go throw some steaks or some ribs or chicken or whatever right, you want yeah, to barbecue grill. Pit. Any, or, yeah, or vegetables that you want to grill on the on the pit. Well, they've got barbecue pits there, so you can do this. Now for this week's postcard from Louisiana, and listen to the TBC Brass Band, a zizzle at the Sexmo Fest at the Old Miss in New Orleans. Thank you. 
everybody here on the Two Beacon Team Bridesman, aka TBC. If you like what you're hearing, follow us on Facebook, Two Beacon Team Bridesman, Instagram, TikTok, I love TBC, I love TBC. Y'all yeah. not yeah. having a good time or what? Yeah. All right. When you make some noise, we're going to bring back on stage the one and only Mr. Asizo. Look at somebody right now and say, Oh, na na na. Oh, na na na. Now look behind you and say, Oh, na na na. Oh, na na na. Right now, y'all, we get ready to get you some. Yeah. That means everybody got to get up. Everybody got to get up. We get ready to get us up. We never know we got some coffee. You got to get up and move around. Y'all ready for it? We got everybody out there, see? 
in a story to be able to take the reader on that kind of a journey where they don't know what's real or not real. Exactly. It's all a mystery. I mean, uh, we, Bruce and I had a professor in grad school who used to say that all 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 mysteries and detective type novels are a polite way of talking about death. <laughs> well, he really yes. was correct in that assessment. Sure. I, I couldn't agree more because, you know, and especially in contemporary society, we don't have as many, you know, rituals like our grandmothers and great-grandmothers and grandfathers had, you know, the the funereal clothes and respect for right. death is, it's been repressed, so it has to come out somewhere else, which I think it's coming out in popular culture because it serves that need for sure. contemporary people. Well, I guess um, I'd like to find out if you have any uh, thoughts about the uh, new series <laughs> Interview with the Vampires. Can I read Well, I have a lot of thoughts. I, I'm not... Um, I actually served as an extra with my husband on the show as part cool. of my ongoing... Let's see what, how, what the nuts and bolts of this thing is. And so uh, I have to say I'm very impressed, first of all, with the amount of attention to detail that they played in that series. Mm-hmm. And then I was sort of overwhelmed by the obvious expenditure of huge amounts of money to make Storyville look real, I to know. make the special effects, to make the vampires be believable, and um, so, so far I've been really very impressed, and the updating I think is very consistent with both New Orleans and its historical issues, and um, also making it relatable to to our contemporary struggles with, you know, race and homophobia and all those bad things, which are worse than vampires, it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I, I thought so, too. They've done a lot of research for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't always get that. There's kind of a lazy New Orleans um, mm-hmm. um, where, I don't know if you ever watched Inside IS New Orleans, but uh, it was beautiful. You know, they, they shot in the, the streets of New Orleans, but the accents were just awful. Right. And they didn't seem, you know, one day one of them right. holding a bag of, uh, um, oh, Come on, it's right there. You can see it. And they say, oh, what you got? Oh, I brought some pastries. I'm like, what? <laughs> you got some beignets. You didn't get pastries. Um, right. They had no faith that their audience would be able to figure out that beignets are a special kind right. of Well, I think the worst instance, and actually I should say also worked at, as an extra on NCIS <clears throat> New Orleans, and I love that. I think they cared about the city, but the most egregious example I remember is they had – they had them making their own Mardi Gras beads. They were stringing them at the kitchen table. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that is, that's never happened. And that is just a very bizarre idea because, you know, they get thrown in the multitudes. Nobody, even glass beads are purchased from somewhere and manufactured. People don't right. make them in their own homes. So, um, Anyway, but NCIS New Orleans did bring a lot of attention to New Orleans. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like there's no bad publicity. And if right. people come to New Orleans, they can get those kind of misconceptions corrected, you know. So I think it still was overall, I feel like NCIS New Orleans was a good thing for New Orleans. And Scott Bakula and most of the actors, I think, really really enjoyed New Orleans. So that was an overall positive, though. I 
certainly agree that there were some, you know, things that they weren't as interested in the details. The one thing I did think, like several years in, um, the head of the NCIS, he's supposed to be from New Orleans, even though he talks like Foghorn Lickhorn, but <laughs> he finds out that he's got a black brother, and there is nothing more New Orleans than that, you know. Right. Very common thing down here. Yes. Well, um, I mean, there's endless stories that the reality of New Orleans offers to writers, but, you know, also offers to TV and film. And, you know, the good ones take advantage of it and pick up on those elements and make really good stories about them. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, they're just getting used to each other. And um, he goes to see his brother and he says, that's my bike. He <laughs> <laughs> was a kid, you know. Uh-huh. His father had taken it and passed it down to his younger uh, black brother, you know, and it's just, it was real interesting to watch them get to know each other. Uh-huh. Well, that's sort of a lesson, I think, for the U.S. at large is that we have to get to know each other and understand yeah. each other and uh, overcome these barriers that are, you know, socially constructed to divide us. So, um Right. Yeah. Yeah, the the oh. very barriers that the elites want to maintain. I mean, Bruce, right? They benefit that all the time, you know, it's, mm-hmm. because it's to the, because let's face it, they have, and this has been pointed out by more than one activist, but they have the money, but we have the numbers, right? Right? We have the numbers, so we have to be kept divided and fighting against each other. Yeah, and I think you know when you when you think about the supernatural, there that's a pretty big division too, the living and the dead. And supernatural TV shows, films, and literature suggests that you know maybe it's not that big of a separation, and we need to listen to those who have died. Um, you know, if not through uh, ghostly apparitions or the undead, we have to listen to the archives and the records that they mm-hmm. left us. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So how did you get interested in uh, the supernatural as part of your scholarly research? Ah, well, that's, that's a good question because, I mean, I started as a science fiction scholar and I still love, I published um, quite a few books on science fiction. So, you know, science fiction and fantasy and supernatural, the horror, they're sort of on a continuum, but I'm a rather squeamish person. I don't go to see horror movies for the fun of it. I don't like being grossed out or scared. So I'm going to give credit to my students who would, um, you know, always ask and push and want to talk about ghosts, vampires, and um, voodoo, and so I ended up teaching classes, and I first just would include a text or a novel, and then I ended up teaching entire courses on uh, the literature of New Orleans and how to include, of course, the supernatural, and then did a whole course for a number of years on ghosts. And so I really would say it's the younger generation, my students, who they're fascinated. They love the supernatural And when you're a teacher, you have to teach the things that students will read. You know, it's much easier if they want to read the assignments than if it's something that they're not interested in. So it was a process really over decades, and I still am pretty squeamish. Like, I write about American Horror Story Coven, but, yeah, I still still sort of, you know, cringe and close my eyes at some of the more gruesome uh, sequences. So, um, LSU, that's just an hour down the road from New Orleans. There's so much of, you know, myth and stuff associated with New Orleans. 
Yes. Well, in Louisiana overall, but it does sort of, you know, as the Mississippi drains down to New Orleans, so does the supernatural. It gets more and more intense. And, of course, part of that's just the history. I mean, there were more people and more atrocities in New Orleans because it was, you know, a, a market for enslavement for so long. And, you know, there's lots of really, uh, and actually the strength of New Orleans, that there was such a large population of free people of color, also meant that there were more conflicts and more tensions that then get resolved or get addressed in ghost stories and horror stories. Um, So, uh, you know, I think it's just sort of inevitable. In New Orleans, voodoo is so important that people are closer and more accepting of the idea that, it's not such a hard and fast separation between, you know, the living and the dead. The second line of funeral parades. And uh, just this past uh, week, there were uh, two major voodoo um, ceremonies that were open to the public, as well as probably some others that, you know, were private, that celebrate the thinness of the veil as they talk about it, you know, between the living and the dead. So it's kind of hard not to be interested in the supernatural if you spend time in Louisiana or especially in New Orleans. So some uh, time back, I got interested in people who attend their own funerals out of their caskets, you know, they <laughs> yes. get and pose them somewhere around in the room. And I read an article in, I think it was a British newspaper, and as I went down through it and looked at the pictures they had, over half of them, you know, of all the people that do this, over half of them were in Louisiana. <laughs> yes, that's right. And we have some celebrities who did that in New Orleans, and so that makes it even more of attention-grabbing, you know, if you have a corpse standing, post-standing, not even in the casket at the funeral. So, um, And I'm sure you've probably been on these cemetery tours, too, where they will have people dressed up as the dead people in the tombs, you know, historical figures talking to you. And every city has that, but in New Orleans, you know, they're standing right by the tomb. So it's a little bit closer (laughs) to the idea of a ghost or um, the living slash dead, you know, being very close to each other. They also like to go out in Jackson Square in front of the cathedral or to the side of it. Like, yes, right now, uh, you know, uh, Jean Lafitte, (laughs) Mm -hmm. lady. A friend, and yeah, you know, give them five bucks, and they'll take a picture with you. Well, I have seen children be completely mesmerized by these historically dressed figures because they stay in character. And so the little children are, like, looking at their parents like, what? How can that, you know, trying to take this in, this concept of the living dead person cheerfully chatting with them in front of a historical uh, setting. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Um, So... uh, Let's hit on some of the TV shows and movies that you've been um, working on. What did you say the new book is about? Well, the new book is called New Orleans City of the Undead, and it came about because an editor at LSU Press contacted me, and I was working on the television book, and she said, you know, there are books about sort of slices of the supernatural, and there are a lot of books that are like, 
sort of encapsulations of the walking tours, which are great, but they're really pretty brief. You know, they just have like a little section right. um, on one incident. And she was interested and thought that people would want to know more of the bigger picture, like why is New Orleans such a, um, you know, sort of supernatural locus? And uh, so I looked into the history, and it goes not just African-American culture, but also Native American culture and the sort of fusion that the city had, which we always think about, okay, well, the food, there's gumbo, there's jambalaya, these are mixtures. The culture is really mixed as well, and the ideas about the spiritual really mixed up in New Orleans, making it really very unique. Um, And so... Uh, in order to make it manageable, and again, I just want to say I agree about werewolves and witches. They should be in there, too, but it would be twice as long of a book. So I decided to focus on voodoo, which is very unique to New Orleans in terms of it, you know, Marie Laveau and the practice still going on here, and then ghosts, and then, um, of course, vampires, because those are all ghosts maybe the least exclusive to New Orleans. But vampires in New Orleans really go together, and so do does voodoo in New Orleans. So, Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really appreciated a show that we put out a few years back. Um, it was <clears throat> one of the seasons of American Horror Story, maybe the third season, where they uh, spent their, you know, their thing was... A, a school for witches in New York. Right, right. That, that's Coven, and I do write extensively about that because it has ghosts and it has voodoo, and um, it doesn't really focus on vampire as much. No. Um, but it does, and it was filmed. I guess that's the other thing I'd like to just mention, and of course that's partly why I've worked as an extra on, on some of these shows, is that... What's really changed is uh, these shows are now filmed on location. And so that makes New Orleans itself like a a character because, um, you know, the buildings themselves and, like, they Coven focuses on Madame LaLaurie, the horrible torturer and serial killer, and her house is still there. The mansion is still there. And so they didn't use it for interior shots, but they did use it for the exterior and that's just a huge part of the city's, you know, feature is the actual landscape where things really happened. And Madame Lori's mansion is, by all accounts, you know, haunted. There are ghosts yeah. there and lots of uh, verifiable accounts of that. So, um, you know, that's a great theory. That season was... Um, they went back and brought forward all these great characters, like Madeline by Laurie. They mm-hmm. buried somewhere and they dig her up. And she's alive. Mm-hmm. She was, that was a torment, was to be, you know, stuck in a coffin for eternity. But then, you know, here she is. And they had uh, Marie Laveau. They yes. had all played by great actresses, too. Angela Bassett, yes. Yes. Kathy Bates. And so the performances yeah. were really, um, you know, they managed to make you believe in those characters and their supernatural abilities yeah it was um you know just kind of accepted and then you know, once you live in a universe of things and they delve a lot into the real new orleans though and that was another mm-hmm. thing i appreciated um well, well uh, 
Uh, some of the um, people who worked on that show, they, they lived here for a while and actually, you know, bought uh, property here. And so I think New Orleans is a place that even famous celebrities who can live anywhere, once they come here, they get kind of a, um, you know, New Orleans fever and, uh, you know, want to settle down here or at least be able to come whenever they want to to their own home. Yeah, like John Goodman famously um, mm-hmm. still does. Jessica Lange bought a house after filming oh, in here. Cool. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of, uh, you know, a nice tribute because, of course, um, <laughs> you know, people who can live anywhere choosing to have a place here is, is wasn't, a tribute. Wasn't Nicholas Cage living there for a time, too? He yes. Laurie House. He did, and I actually saw him twice, once on the balcony and um, once when he was driving. Well, actually – one of his his wife at the time was driving, and they were both very inebriated. So I don't know. Maybe if you live in that house, you have to, um, you know, kind of medicate yourself to to get through it all. And of course, you know, he lost that house in bankruptcy. There's a lot of bad luck associated with the Lori Mansion, and Nicolas Cage has an amazing tomb already built for himself. Talk about having a funeral, beautiful, weird pyramid tomb in. Um, the New Orleans cemetery waiting for him when he passes. So I don't know if he's planning to be a ghost here, but he's certainly <laughs> kept his roots. Yeah. Um, well, you've got Sean Penn, who uh, mm-hmm. did all the King's Men remake a few years back, and came down here during Katrina and <laughs> wandered around the city with a shotgun. You know, it's like right. But, <laughs> I'm sure he meant. I'm sure he meant well. He also yeah. did a short-lived science fiction series that he filmed here, and he could have filmed it anywhere, but he chose to film. Sean Penn did. He chose to film it here. Um, I think because of having affection. Of course, Brad Pitt is well known for having, yeah. you know, for, for the Make It Right Foundation and buying a, a mansion also in the French Quarter. So, so what's um, the Supernatural series? Pardon? The name of the Supernatural series that Sean Penn did. Oh, oh it wasn't. It was science fiction. It was. He was. Um, he was. It was. Um, he was a father daughter show, and it only ran for one season, I think, on Netflix. I'll have oh. to Google it really quick. But um, he, it really had nothing to do with New Orleans, but he chose to film it here. I think because he wanted to be here. So, um, it was about going to Mars, and oh, okay. um, yeah, I'll. Let me go to my computer and I'll pull that up while we're we're talking because it it I thought it was a good show but again that was because I worked as an extra on it for an episode so I thought oh yeah I hope this keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> but did you ever serve as a as a consultant on any of these jobs? No, and actually I probably shouldn't be talking about doing an extra because you're not supposed to write about it at all. But um, I've been just sort of, uh, first of all, enjoy seeing how things are made. But I did publish one article about Green Book, which, again, was not really set in New Orleans per se, but it was filmed in New Orleans. And that has to do with tax credit. So, you know, that, yes. um, you know, um, <laughs> that's good. a more practical reason to come to New Orleans. Hey, I think that tax credit has worked out really well because we've got Louisiana on the screen all the time nowadays. And we didn't always have that. So. Right. And and I think that the state government is very aware that it's, you know, wonderful free publicity for our oh, tourism sure. industry. I did just find the series. It was called The First, and oh, cool. it, it had one season in 2018. And it was the first crew going to Mars, but oh, it was filmed. 
New Orleans. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there has been some sci-fi in New Orleans. Like, um, there was a time travel one with um, Denzel Washington some years back. Yeah. Um, but usually it's more the supernatural, right? It's- right, because we're not su- – New Orleans is not really a high-tech city, but it's got, no. you know, all of the appurtenances, the houses, the myths, the river, the history that, you know, yeah. really calls on the supernatural – yeah, so, um, and some of the great series are, of course, the originals, which is um, right. You know, has as I mentioned, you know, the hybrid werewolf character is very important <laughs> in that, um, and uh, you know, there are so many other. Um, sort of, some of them are really terrible, not terrible, campy movies like Dracula two thousand, right. <laughs> Mardi Gras, and vampires in the most you know almost laughable but still entertaining movie. So um, what I liked about the originals, they did seem to learn as the series went along. Like the first season, they're living on Bourbon Street, right? Like self-respecting, right. lives on Bourbon Street. Um, uh huh. But by the third or fourth season, um, they're going there to prowl for you know they're, they're going to feed off of the tourists, which is exactly what everybody else on Bourbon Street is doing. Um, right, right. It's making literal the. The metaphorical. Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing I really like about um, the originals is that they they created the whole casket girls, which there are stories about the casket girls who came from France being vampires, but right. they made it that there's a festival, and I thought, that's great. Somebody should make a casket girls festival. Why don't we have that? <laughs> I don't know. We should because it was – but it was – even though it was, um, you know, their invention, it was in spirit with everything going in New Orleans. So I think that's an example of what you just identified is they began to get it and understand the real spirit of New Orleans or spirits because it's yeah, certainly well, plural. Writer, I can't remember her name. We interviewed her years ago about um, she wrote a novel, Casket Girls, which makes them, you know, um, vampires. And, I mean, it benefits from Oh, Elise, was right? it Elise uh, Arden? It's a, yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah. Because in French, it's the pied de cassette. You know, right. Like, you know, something you put in your radio. Um, right. But translates over into English is casket. Then uh, your, your imagination can run with it. Right. Well, and, and uh, the tour guides certainly tell a story of the casket girls, and they even walk people past the Ursuline convent and point out the windows that are nailed shut. You know, purportedly, that's where those vampires possibly still are who knows because they don't really use that building it's not open to the public so yeah um that's cool um i wanted to talk a little have you studied frank's play yes i'm so glad you brought up that wonderful critically applauded but impossible to obtain copies of TV show. Right. And I was going to ask where you got your copies because I have not been able to find any. Well, it's it's rather funny. So I moved here in the 80s, and they were at that time showing the, um, the in the, um, I think it was 89, 90, 91, BET re-ran Frank's play. Oh. And I videotaped it. And I've been teaching ever since from those videotapes, including adapting them, of course, when I had to, copying them onto DVDs. So I have personal copies. And as a teacher, you're allowed to use your personal copies, you know, for 
nonprofit things like you know teaching a course. But uh, I have jealously guided the, guarded those, and students would ask to borrow them, and I just would say no, I can't. That's not going to. These are precious objects. So that's how. Um, now I have for my book. I did research how to get stills from them, and um, the UC, the University of California. Um, library has copies. There's a museum oh. in uh, New York that has copies. But, I mean, it's only for, like, researchers. It's not like a lending library. So, when yeah, this, occasionally... Uh, the Paley Library, is it called the Paley Library? Do they have it? They do a lot of TV archival. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, I don't think they have any that you can, as a um, researcher, access. Um, and actually, I've been looking to see what to do with my DVDs because even though they're not, you know, super high quality, somebody, some library should have them so more people can watch them. And I know you interviewed, um, you know, you, you interviewed Kim Reed, so you know yeah. why it's not available. It's really sad. Um, he says that the music, mm -hmm. they, they can't get, you know, it would take a lot of money. He told me a million dollars per episode because they use so much original music. Oh and, you know, musicians' copyrights are, you know, they're very uh, strictly held. And so um, a million an episode, for even for one season, you know, the price of an individual DVD would be, you know, unaffordable for anybody. So do you recall the, the old series? Uh, 80s and 90s. It was really groundbreaking uh, crime series called uh, Wise Guy for Ken yes. Wall. Really mm -hmm. top shelf type programming. And that is the very story of a whole. And there's actually more than one story arc like this from from the series. But one of the one of the story arcs, I think, is called Dead Dog Records, and it's, it went over about four or five six episodes. So mm -hmm. we'll say roughly a month, month and a half worth of, of entries. And those will not be, at least for the foreseeable future, won't be released on DVD. I mean, you can find bootlegs of them. Uh, right. I, I had those bootlegs actually for a time. But they uh -huh. won't be released because of that very reason you're talking about, that the uh, musical numbers. I think Debbie Harry may have been the guest on those things. But anyway, it was uh -huh. so popular at that time. And so they couldn't very well go and release those things because then you have to go and pay the artist. Right. And you have to respect that, but it's yeah, really – what it's doing, though, is uh, penalizing the creativity and the mm. contribution that actual, yeah. you know, uh, original music makes to yeah. uh, a TV show. And that's why, you know, music is pretty unremarkable in TV, not right. just because people don't want to have good music, they can't afford it, you know. Yeah. Well, Frank's play for our audience members who haven't seen it. <laughs> um, and I haven't seen it since its first run. Like uh, that was Wednesday night. Am I right? On uh, back in the eighties. Uh, well, the other problem is they moved it around nights, and so people uh, have really said if they would have just you know taken better care of it, it would have you know kept it what? consistent. The, the um, idea behind the conceit is uh, Frank is this, uh, or not Frank? Who's um, who's the guy? He's a he's a Harvard um, teacher. Right, and, it's Tim Reed's character, and he is yeah. Frank, and he okay. and he inherits a restaurant from his father, who he never knew. So he's the yeah. outsider coming to New Orleans, yeah. And he learns all about it, and it's it's a really clever conceit because it is hard right. to explain New Orleans, but there you've got the main character having to always learn about funerals and voodoo and everything. 
every week he's presented with some strange New Orleans thing, and they have to explain it to him, and of course to us. Um, like he's the surrogate for the for the viewers. Yes, yes. Uh, but it's so also combined colors of the of the uh, exile and return narrative, and also like Bruce talks about the fish out of water story too. Yes. But well, and it's it's funny. So I, it's, the great thing about Frank's place to me is that it managed to walk that line between really. And they did research. Um, they didn't film on yeah. location, but they did, uh, you know, hire um, an act or a Louisiana um, native to be an actor who, who wasn't an actor. And they also flew out, flew out. Um, you know, the it was based on an actual restaurant, uh, Austin Leslie's, you know, his restaurant. And they flew him out to California to <clears throat> made food for the crew and the staff so they could get some of the ambiance. And the well, writers the, did a good job. Really, oh, they had the cook. It was this uh, middle-aged yes, so. black guy that oh. always had a big knife. <laughs> right, and he wore uh, he wore like um, uh, a ship's, um, you know, a captain's cap, and that is, yep. was a feature of of this actual chef in New Orleans who was very well regarded. And um, and, and food a, was important too in the show because okay. he. He got a jinx on him, Frank did. That's why he had to come back to New Orleans, even though he didn't want to. <laughs> so. Right? So cool. And, and they found a kid uh, on an airplane. He was from Chalmette, and they loved his accent so much that he hired him to be the assistant chef. Right, he always, shorty. He was shorty. Yeah, I'm chef, but the, the head guy is the cook. And, right. Uh, one's black and one's white, and it's just a real interesting mixture of all the stuff that you do find in New Orleans. Yes. Well, Don Yeso, Don Yeso was a native, too. He played one of the parts. I don't recall which. I think he was the bartender, and he was okay. very good. And they had that some of the plots, like they had one called Food Fight, where they had a white French Quarter chef fighting the cook about who owned the recipes, I mean, who had created the recipes. And so that was a very – that was – you know, in the 80s, talking about racial, you know, appropriation of black culture by white um, exploiters of black culture and not getting credit, that was a great episode. Um, in my book, I talk about dueling voodoo, which is where there are two voodoo priests, and Frank is in the middle of them as they fight. And, uh, you know, he's a professor and says he doesn't believe in voodoo, but by the end of the episode, he believes in voodoo. <laughs> so. Nobody's Go out on a limb against voodoo in New Orleans. You, you, you know, there's just that enough doubt. You know, maybe it right. is working. Um, so yeah, um, what and that show I think had some trouble because it was so far ahead of its time. Yes, yeah. I don't believe they had a laugh track, and that was there was no. It was one of the very first <laughs> what we call dramedies. So it's yeah. a comedy. But it is the emphasis is on a very serious dramatic narrative, and there was no laugh track. But it's brilliantly done, and the fact that you remember it after not oh. seeing it for many years is a tribute. Because how many other TV shows from that time period could you recall not having seen them again? You know, I mean, that so. was the era of what, like Three's Company, just horrible. Yeah. Yes. Well, right, you know, well, yeah. Interestingly, right after that. Uh, John Ritter, was it CBS, I think, hired him to play in a uh, somewhat similar, uh, not a, it wasn't a similar role, but the, the genre was similar. It was a dramedy, too. Was it called Hooperman or something like that? Mm -hmm. But it was a very short-lived 
uh, kind of a piece with John Ritter, who had been doing a lot of slapsticky, kind of mistaken identity type comedy in Three's Company. Right. Well, today that series came out, it would have, you know, its home on HBO or Netflix. Right. Yes, it was really, that's, and any art that is ahead of its time is going to suffer as a result. But if you look in the critical literature about TV, Frank's Place is often cited and is well-known and well-remembered. And, of course, when Treme, the HBO series, came to town, they had two public sort of conferences and, um, you know, talked about the legacy of Frank's Place and how important it was to the creators of Treme. And, of course, um, Tim Reed played a judge in Treme, so they, yeah. you know, honored him by giving him a role in the HBO yeah. series. I've been finally re-watching Treme for the first time since its first run. Uh, I watched it religiously, which I think mm-hmm. is what people did uh, back when it came out. But it's just, you, A, you cannot binge this show. It's just too painful. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's very intense. I yeah, I agree. Uh, I just watched the episode, uh, season one, episode nine, where John Goodman's character, uh, you know, he's running around the city having a great day. Or, I mean, he's doing his favorite stuff, but you can tell he's a little burdened. And and this time around, I noticed that you know he's every English professor's favorite English professor, <laughs> right in Burnett, right and. Uh-huh. Uh, what is he teaching? He's teaching the ending of uh, The Awakening by Kate right. Right. It's This time around, of course, I, you know. It's foreshadowing. Now you know, oh uh-oh, God. I know what's going to happen next now. Yeah, because I couldn't yeah. remember what episode he committed suicide. And even at the time, I didn't even know he had committed suicide because of the way they played it. He was riding the, uh, the, the, the ferry across the river, and he's standing there one minute, and you look away, right. and then you back, and he's not there. Well, he could have right. walked, but no, it turned out, eventually I found out, oh, he committed suicide, but um, this time I knew it was coming sometime, and when he started teaching about Edna committing suicide, I knew, oh, this has got to be the episode. Right, right. But no, that was very sad, and I love Treme. But there's very little of the supernatural about Treme. It's so much gritty realism. It's unrelieved. And I think, you know, what, bizarre as it sounds, you know, vampires, ghosts, and voodoo offer us some hope because the real world is is awful much of the time. And supernatural offers you a way to escape it or to have justice enacted or at least some kind of other narrative than the the painful one of the reality of New Orleans uh before and after Katrina. So um yeah, I, I think not, you know to me that's not coincidental with the the grittiness of Treme because after all it was created in part maybe maybe in part or maybe all of it by uh, David Simon who created that series The Wire. The Wire, yeah. Exactly in Baltimore, yeah. I mean so and he has I keep saying this to people who I don't know. They, they they always want to talk about the the dialects, plural of New Orleans, how they resemble New York. To me, it sounds more like Baltimore. I mean, I went up there yeah. one time, dated someone who was from. She was not from Baltimore, from Philadelphia, but we went uh-huh. down to Baltimore, and I was hearing some of the dialects. I said some of this reminds me vaguely of New Orleans. 
Right. Yeah, right. there's I'm not a linguist, but there is a sort of Brooklyn gritty urban mm-hmm. dialect that is that is the yat kind of yeah. um, expression. Yeah, I'm actually wearing a Bunny Matthews t shirt as we're talking. So he was somebody who who used that a lot in his cartoon and his uh you know, cartooning art. So Vicky yeah, at Vic and Natalie. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> and po boys. But so I guess that's just by way of saying I, I think Treme was really so intense and so real that I am not surprised that the originals and interview with the vampire and you know uh, American horror story coven are more popular because yeah. they do offer some relief from the brutalities of the the real world. And I will say Treme is still available through your HBO um, Yes on demand. Yes. Uh, how I'm watching it. And um but yeah, I have to make myself. I, I believe it. In my mind, it originally aired on Sunday night, so that mm-hmm. Sunday night I make myself watch because it's so beautiful, it's so great, it's so right. <laughs> it does. They did circumvent and did pay up front for the musicians, so at least they got around the issue that we've been discussing about TV shows that use original music and then aren't allowed to circulate well, you- it after. You get to hear these guys, and sometimes they'll play a little bit role, but um, that are now uh, gone, like uh, yes. Josh John, you know, yes. he was there a few times. And, right. um, now he's gone, and you know, you, but you can see him from 10 years ago uh, at the height of his powers. Right. And see uh, him in, in the context of New Orleans, which, you know, not yeah. everybody can travel to New Orleans and get to go on a ghost tour or hear Dr. John play. So it is It is a wonderful, I'm sure, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, people will be studying it and appreciating those performances. Well, I mean, I never heard of the neighborhood for me. And I lived here for eight years back in the 80s um, mm-hmm. uh, over in Gentilly, but I'd never heard of me until this show came out. And then, mm-hmm. Oh, it's the oldest black um free neighborhood in the country because these uh, fields of color had built their houses there. And, um, you know, so they really did their research. Like anybody yes. could say French Quarter. Uh, yes. yes, I have to do some research to say this for me. Well, David uh, Simon, I think, um or maybe it was the other co-author of um, Treme, actually had a home in the Marigny. So he lived here part-time and I think you know, had a partial insider's view, as well as they hired actual Marlinians to write, you know, like uh, a colleague of mine. Yes, Lois Eli and Mary Kornhauser, who worked at LSU but lived in New Orleans. So they had locals writing. So that that kept them from making any howlers. There was um, a very funny TV show that was filmed right after Katrina where, you know, they would have them driving around streets and they would get from Bourbon Street to Uptown in like a minute. And, I mean, there were just a lot of crazy things that if you don't have somebody from the city, you're going to just, you know, you're just going to really distort everything about New Orleans. You're having a foot chase and one minute you're, you know, uh, Jackson Square and then you're way over in Gentilly, you know, some shot from there. So, yeah. It's just background, but the people that really love it, um, probably, I guess, French Place and 
for May were probably the two best shows for my money ever done about New Orleans. And yeah. I, I, I think the critics, the, um, you know, ac- scholarly critics agree and TV critics um, agree too. And of course, you know, uh, TV executives look at the bottom line more. <laughs> so they might have a different list of favorites like, you know, NCIS New Orleans and the originals, which, you know, did very yeah. well uh, financially. I thought the originals, they learned a lot. And I can forgive a lot if they're willing to learn. Like, you know, like yeah. I say, the first season, they're living on Bourbon Street because right. you know, the one they've heard of. And then I think they're in Algiers or somewhere after a while, and they just go there to to, to hunt. Um, uh-huh. uh, so, yeah, I thought that they did a lot to um, learn about the city. Uh, mm-hmm. while well, in the city, I think if you stay here long enough, if you if you film many seasons of a TV show, it's going to have an impression. It's going to create, um, you know, some kind of atmosphere on the show, or at least on the people who are spending the time in New Orleans working, from the actors to the production staff. So I, I agree, it's going to have an impact. The web series, Our Sunken City. No, I'm not familiar with that. And there I'm betraying my age because podcasts and web series um, are things my students bring to me that I don't um, I don't encounter them in my in my daily life. So so tell me some more about our sunken so city. The title's sunken, amazing. Yeah, they've got a, a YouTube channel, and it was it was kind of a calling card series for these two, Kylie June Williams and. What was the guy's name, Stephen? I um, can't ever think of his name. <laughs> it always escapes me. Uh, it'll come back in a second. Anyway, they can, it's kind of like Portlandia in that uh, the couple plays three different couples in the show. Oh, um, okay. One of them are just trying to, you know, they're marketers. There's a pair of marketers. Another is uh, their uh, voodoo tour. They've got the... The vam- you know, they've got the voodoo, and I think the vampires, I think they're both that. And then the third uh, couple is the one I found really fascinating. Um, it's an uptown couple, and um, uh, he's a, the guy that, uh, you know, stars in it. He, he puts on a, he's a black guy, but he puts on, like, uh, he has this, uh, you know, uptown hair. You know, it's gray, and it's all calmed and everything. Uh-huh. Um, the thing is, he's going to run... For the king of Rex. Uh, every time he's just so out of you know clueless. <laughs> People love him, but he's really, really clueless. And um, <laughs> um, he uh, he's going to be the king of Rex. And every time he says that, somebody says that's not how they say it. Right. <laughs> you can't be Rex if you don't even know what the right title <laughs> well, is. <laughs> right. You, and uh, of course, when we talk to CJ, he said then also he's black and he'll never get elected. Right. To, uh, the uh, king of red. But anyway, you have to work really hard in your own to stay ignorant because people will correct you. Now, like, yes, you know, they kept trying to correct him. It's Rex. It's not the king of Rex. It's Rex. It's Rex. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to be king of Rex. So he's just you know, <laughs> unable to learn. And I feel like some of our TV shows suffer from that. Right. Um, Right, because they're not really invested in or don't appreciate New Orleans. They're kind of exploiting New Orleans rather than appreciating it as a yeah. character or as a Hunt. place. That's our character, C.J. Yeah. Hunt. What's mm-hmm. that, Stephen? C.J. Hunt. Right, that's his name. And um, there's, he, a whole, there's a whole industry like that where they 
they show a real profound, I think, disrespect for the whole state of Louisiana. And Bruce and I talk about this all the time. They come up here, you know, the the original version of Bonnie and Clyde that came out when I was a little kid. Uh-huh. And both of them should have known better. At least the actors were Southerners. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. um, Faye Dunaway was, you know, granted, she's from Florida, but uh, and Warren Beatty's a Virginian, I think, or Kentucky, and one of the two. But they've got them speaking, and particularly uh, Faye Dunaway, speaking as though she's from somewhere over in the southeast, like Georgia or Alabama, when Bonnie okay. was from Texans. And they right. would have like a North Louisiana. And if you want to know, they would have talked like that. Right. That's how they, I mean, it's a very flat sort of a dialect. It's Hill Country of North Louisiana and South Arkansas. But they would have sound like somebody from Northeast Texas, not like somebody from Alabama or Georgia. Right. I mean, and, it was and, lazy writing. Right. Honest. And Well, and lazy production. And that then, yeah. you know, dates uh, productions, makes them hard to watch, makes people resent right. them. Right. And I do think especially TV has grown much more respectful of place and the actual filming in New Orleans mm-hmm. Yes. As you point out, gives many opportunities for people to be corrected if they're doing something wrong, you <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> people so. come up and talk to you on the street, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, CK didn't, if he didn't to his uh, stuff, he, uh, he left New Orleans a few years ago, and I think he may work for The Daily Show, or he's done uh, episodes for him, you know. Mm-hmm. And when they started... Um, the issue of taking down the Confederate monuments when it was reaching a you know a boil. He came here uh-huh. uh, and did a documentary. Uh, do you remember the documentary, Stephen? Um, oh no, I don't, and I know what you're talking about though. Uh, where it's um, kind of a satirical sort of a thing. Yeah, I mean, he starts out, and um, it's going to be kind of like it, uh, a, a, a bit for you know. Uh, the Daily Show. You know, he's kind of funny. He's making these uh, big racists who are coming to the city council meeting. Uh, you know, the, the, it doesn't take much to to parody them or make right. them look like fools. Yeah. But uh, his dad is this like old radical, um, and um, he uh, he talks to him. He's, he by far runs away with the thing, and. Uh-huh. Um, at the end, he has uh, CJ. You know, as time goes on, you see the nature of the documentary change um, because it gets so. You know, there's people killed in a, um, a Charlottesville. You know, he went there for uh-huh. that. After that, it just gets really kind of dark. And he said, "You know, Dad, um, the more I do this, the more I'm just I'm mad all the time." You did that for me. He said, no, son, America did that for you. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, uh, that's the end. It, you know, it's supposed to be, like, it gets on PBS, right? And it's supposed to have mm-hmm. a happy ending. Right. And, um, you know, they it's going to be them taking down the statue of Robert E. Lee. But, no, they go even beyond that to, okay, we've done something to help the problem on its surface. But that racism is still there, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Right. Well, the Moose Ground, that's the name of the flick, and it's... Neutral Ground. Points, this points right. to what I said with our guest just last week, who's an anti-racism activist, um, Tim Wise, and I said, I call that Little Jack Horner Syndrome, where we pat ourselves on the back and say, what a good boy or what a good girl am I, right? I mean, that's what we do, uh, instead mm-hmm. of getting at structural and institutional problems and failings, we just go right on and act as though everything's okay. 
Well, and that's where the supernatural makes an intervention by saying, this is never over. It It is here and it's all around us and it's inescapable. So, um, you know, if you just look at one little piece of reality and say, oh, a statue's moved, but the spirits say, no, the suffering is not gone just because you did one thing. So, yeah. um oh. So what are some of the other shows that you've uh, studied, um, you know, as a part of your research? Well, um, you know, I did uh, look at, um, as I mentioned, the movie Green Book because it was interesting to see how Louisiana and New Orleans got to stand in for the South writ large, that it was, you know, the buildings and enough of our old architecture remains here so that they could film a, a movie set in the 60s and it would look real you using new buildings. Cars, right? Yeah, and the cars were pretty, the cars were pretty amazing too, but um, yeah, so, and um, well, in addition to, I do look at interview with uh, the vampire, the film, because I think it's really interesting to compare the current TV show to the film and what choices were made you know, based on, you know, the 90s versus now and how they reflect our view of culture, supernatural changes as our culture changes. So the right. coded homosexual relationship in the film is right. quite explicit yeah. and complicated by race in a way that, you know, just really wasn't going to happen in the 1990s in a blockbuster movie. Um, right. Or even that much in the book, you know, like uh, Lewis is... Uh, uh, Creole of color, um, and uh, you know, Lestat is from France, and kind of not don't, won't bother to learn what the the race situation is all about in New Orleans. He just he's above all of it. So, well, he's a bad guy, so that's one way we know that he's a bad guy. <laughs> right, right, right. He's oblivious to racism, um, and I do. In addition to TV and movies and walking tours. I also talk about some novels and there's a wonderful book by George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame um, called Fever Dream, which is set in New Orleans with vampires. It's a really amazing book and it deals with race and enslavement and uh, you know, it's I think pretty much ahead of ahead of its time. I'd love to see that made into a movie but um or a TV show but but Martin's got to finish the Game of Thrones series before anybody will let him do anything else, right. I guess. Well, they, they're doing the prequel now, so... Uh. Yes, yes, I know. But um, uh, um, And also, in terms of ghosts, there's a really great book that was edited and republished by my friend Frank DeCaro called Ghost Stories of oh. Old New Orleans. And that gives you a lot of history about the local ghost stories and um, it's quite fascinating to read because many of those are those told, the same stories are told on walking tours. But right. um, to see the literary version of them, I think, is, um, you know, quite compelling. And to see the choices that in retelling ghost stories, what gets emphasized. Yeah, Frank, uh, I think he also wrote Louisiana Literary Sojourns. Oh, he, he, he was, he's sort of one of the Louisiana folklorists, and he passed very sadly early, early in the COVID epidemic. Right. But he has a dozen books in which he focuses on, um, you know, from ghost stories to uh, Louisiana music and photography. And he did a great book where... 
um, that Louisiana sojourned, where he went to different places and compared, you know, what it was written about, um, you know, in famous passages, and then he went and saw to see what the place still looked like. And that's a really interesting comparative study of what how things change and how they're commemorated. You know, are they preserved? Are there markers? How do people talk about, um, you know, Northrop's um, 12 Years a Slave, for example? So, right. Um, right. He did well, a he, lot. Yeah, we tried to interview him, but he was his health was declining even at the time. Uh, yeah. Well, his work, you know, lives on in, in books. And actually, yeah. we did a special edition of Louisiana Folklore Miscellany in his honor included he uh, at the end of his life wrote short stories about New Orleans so that's that's a pretty cool way to turn i think as a, yeah. a folklorist then to fiction uh, and tell those stories um, well anyway, it should add that he co-wrote with his wife on some of that so uh, yes um, yes Roseanne uh, Jordan and she yeah. took photographs of um they took me in fact to one of the first um day you know um the uh, ritual washing and celebrations, which we know is the Mexican Day of the Dead, but it is a big thing in New Orleans and in Louisiana. And they took me to one of those in the 80s, which was, you know, candlelit, and people had washed, whitewashed the tombs, and they were oh. eating, and it was just an amazing experience. So they yeah. were... Um, and, you know, you know the scholarly thing, uh, Stephen and I were kicking around the idea of um, doing the Louisiana Anthology collection of texts about Louisiana, but you don't want to reinvent the wheel. So you go to the library and start looking around for, has somebody else already done this? And um, really nobody had done a comprehensive general uh, anthology since the 1800s. And 1894. Yeah. <laughs> right. So time the running gag in the first presentation Bruce and I did for his class, his class was plural, because we would put that up there on the on the PowerPoint, and people would recognize that that's the date that Louisiana Tech, our school was founded, <laughs> you know, the, third, the third oldest or fourth oldest uh, public university in the state after LSU, and, and I think maybe Southern and definitely uh, Northwestern. The Tech was, I think, the next one. And for a hundred years now, <laughs> right? Something like that had come along. I mean, it's just incredible. But More than Frank years. had done the best uh, um, anthology in living memory, and his was kind of specialized. It was about people traveling through Louisiana. So yes, yeah. but traveling like you, say, yeah. you have to have an angle, um, or the book will be endless. <laughs> right, right. You have to, and that's the hard choice. Like, and, and again, I go back to why don't I have werewolves? You just really do have to have to make choices. I would give a shout out to Nancy Dixon who has yeah. the comprehensive yeah. anthology of New Orleans literature. That's a yeah. book that I've used. Um it's just called New Orleans Literature, but it was amazing to me that until she did that a few years ago there was no anthology I could teach from. I had to always use Xerox. <laughs> so right. um you know, but I do believe that Louisiana and New Orleans are so rich in their culture and all the many, many, um, you know, literary and media productions that there's, it's going to, it's an industry and should continue 
to give many people work and opportunities to write. And, you know, that it's in a podcast, I think, is wonderful because my students all listen to podcasts. So you're reaching a lot of people who are not going to pick up a bunch of books and read them. And uh, we do have the text version website, the Louisiana Anthology, which just a couple of months ago passed 9 million words. So, um, the wow, that's impressive. <laughs> that's great. Well, I will be able to direct students and future researchers to that because I'm sure that's a wonderful resource. Um, well, last night we just finished putting the final touches on uh, the Treaty uh, of the Louisiana Purchase. And I don't know why it took me 10 years to think about it, but, you know, it's out there in French and it's out there in English, but we were able to you know, put them together and put them on wow. a Wow, wow. So, Side by side. There wouldn't be, you know, a New Orleans as we know it or a state of Louisiana or a United States without all of that. So that's that's how 14 or 15 other states either in part or in their entirety. And what we're saying, I mean, we had added about eight or nine years. No, well, I found it about eight or nine years ago, I guess it was, with that play that we believed to be the first play in English to feature Louisiana as its setting, but it's at Liberty in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And that's from the days of the territory now. It's 1804. Wow. So, yeah, so it's a 218-year-old play. And we brought right. it back. We will hopefully next year uh, through University of Louisiana Press, Lafayette, we'll get that thing published. So it'll be, you know, a revival of that thing, resurrection that's, of it. That's wonderful. Yeah, and we've made the final edits. It's out of our hands. So we're just waiting for <laughs> uh-huh. a new book to show up. <laughs> right. Well, books take a long time. I mean, that's yeah, another they- thing about you know, literary production versus, uh, you know, media and podcasts, which can happen more quickly sometimes, I think. So that was exactly, you know, we, we wanted to do the anthology. We'd made up our minds at that point. Um, and then you have to decide what, what's the media going to be, medium, you know. And, right. What's your platform? Yeah. yeah. You want it to be uh, a typical book, but Stephen and I are both, little ADHD and <laughs> don't have a lot of patience. Also, I was afraid of uh, working nine years on something like that, and then somebody else comes out with their Louisiana anthology the week before <laughs> we start in. So, um, it so is we, important to be first. That's true. Yeah. So we put one story online and said we are the Louisiana anthology. It was Possum Joan by George Washington Cable. <laughs> a great choice. Wonderful. Yeah, it's a great story, but, you know, it was a little bold to make the assertion that we are the Louisiana Anthology. It's one story, you know. Just That's no bolder than, you know, the French uh, nobility who came over here and put a stick in and said, hey, this is now yeah. French territory, you know. Exactly, and we've had that for a while. The, uh, I think it's LaSalle claiming uh, the Mississippi River Valley. Uh, right. But we just added the treaty. Uh, would you like to hear a radioactive spider story about how we came to be? Yes, I would. <laughs> so, sounds very science fiction-y. <laughs> <laughs> it was my first semester at LSU, 1988. And Malcolm Richardson, do you remember him? Oh, of course. He is a colleague of mine. Yeah. Well, he chair was... of the department and uh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the dean's office. He did a lot of good for LSU. Mm-hmm. He was teaching us how to teach technical writing. I tell you, of all the classes I took at LSU, that probably has kept me a, a job going. <laughs> I've taught a lot of technical writing over the years. Anyway, 
1988. One day he stops uh, teaching and starts doing his cranky professor shtick, and he says, you know, it's been 50 years exactly. Clint Brooks and Robert Penn Warren published Understanding Poetry. It changed the way that we study literature. I mean, even once we've gone away from new criticism, the idea that you're going to have a critical approach is just embedded now because of these two guys, and they're mm-hmm. still alive. They've gone on to spectacular careers, all the <clears throat> poetry. Just You couldn't think of bigger careers than these two guys. And they're still alive, possibly not too far away, and uh, LSU is doing uh, recognizing this occasion by doing absolutely nothing. Like, you never heard <laughs> anything uh-huh. um, Were you there in 88? Yes, I was. I came in 87. So uh-huh. we were uh, um, tread the same ground. <laughs> Right, yes. Um, Lisa Walker says hi, by the way. Um, oh, well, thank you for that. Glad to hear that. She's my best friend from there. She's being a dean now, too. So uh, Anyway, uh-huh. um, he, um, he said we're doing absolutely nothing. And if this were Mississippi, they would have a year-long extravaganza. There'd be a, a conference, maybe a parade. It would be on TV. It would be on mm-hmm. news magazines, they really know how to polish their literary apple in Mississippi. Um, uh-huh. And so I would tell that story from time to time um, to my classes, and Stephen and I would uh, used to go out to eat trainings on Wednesday nights, just uh, catch up on what's going on. And I told him that story one too many times, and he said, well, you know, we should do an anthology of Louisiana literature. And I said, I didn't mean us. <laughs> I mean, Zim, 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 Zim should be doing this, right? Uh, and uh, so that's when we got to looking around to see if they had done anything, and they hadn't. So we did. Uh-huh. Well, that's a great, a great story, and I hope you have told Malcolm that. That probably would make him so happy. I need to text him. We're friends on Facebook. And I just felt a little. <laughs> But yeah, he needs to hear that because he it, does. But he was listening uh, to the uh, cranky right. Part. Well, that is wonderful that you answered that call and picked up, you know, the the load to do that because it is um, what you do is a lot of work. But if you don't do it, no one else would have done it. I think yeah, that's really true. So Stephen and I were southerners. Much I'd never. The only thing about my Louisiana authors I'd ever read were. Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin and uh, mm-hmm. The Magi by O. Henry. And neither one of them is really in Louisiana. You know, they're just kind of right. near uh, uh, setting by authors who lived in Louisiana. So, so yeah, on the surface, we don't make the most logical pair to do it. It's just nobody else was. So We uh, fell into this. I mean, Bruce yeah. is a classicist. I'm a neoclassicist. You know, we did not train to do this. Um, but, but you have the you have um, the vision, you know. Yeah. And I think any training, any educational training, will prepare you for whatever task because the task is the same, even if the subject or topic is different. So I studied library science. So yeah, I had a, a a pretty good kind of a run studying library science. I mean, so I got kind of adept at doing. And it's the early days of the web. This is around two thousand, mm-hmm. but I still they gave us tools that most of which are still applicable. 
like how to do web searches, you know, how to go mm-hmm. and, and get the maximum benefit. I took a class as an example just in reference materials where that's all we did all semester long was look at reference sources like atlases, like encyclopedias, like, you know, law books. I mean, all of those are reference books. Surprise. Right. Uh, textbooks it, are all reference books. It, sure. It's stuff that you don't read per se, but you do consult. Right. And it's still research and it's still, you know, yeah. applying the analytics to it. So that, yeah, I think, is wonderful. And Stephen, you know, he can do the research and the stuff that's not really on the web and available, like Liberty in Louisiana. We, um, he found it. Um, not available. It's just listed in a database. Mm-hmm. Yeah, able to write off and get a PDF of it. And we slowly, slowly um, edited it because it's a wretched copy. It's like a copy of a copy of a copy. Wow! Yeah. wow. It's several generations removed from even from that. The only extant edition, as best we can tell, is that that second edition from 1804, and it's possible. The other edition, I wouldn't say it's 1803, but it's probably earlier in the same year. But, yeah, like Bruce said, what it is is that it, they took that second edition and then they microfilmed it, but then they digitized a the microfilm. Well, that's wow. even further removed from the second sure. edition. Sure. I'm surprised it's legible at all after that. It was well, pretty degraded in places. Part to be honest. of it, you, you have to guess the word, and, you know, it, it looks like it should be a V, so we're going to put V. <laughs> right. Well, uh, that's where context and a lot of other reading helps, you know, helps you fill right. that in. So, sure. So, I think we've gone a little over an hour. Do you have any other uh, things you'd like to talk about that we forgot to ask about? No, I really enjoyed this conversation. And I think the three of us all love and are fascinated with Louisiana, as we agree probably everyone should be. And the supernatural is a great way to access it for people who, you know, haven't had the fortune to live here or, um, you know, haven't visited yet. So I I hope that uh, people will keep exploring Louisiana inspired by your work. I did want to ask, you know, it's not New Orleans, but do you have any thoughts on True Blood? Oh, well, the books are very good. And, of course, you know, the... It is always mentioned in the books that, you know, New Orleans is the center of vampirism and more, you know, more serious than the country, um, you know, setting. And uh, I think that idea is, you know, really True Blood built on Anne Rice and the idea that vampires are, um, can be ethical and can be um, characters that we should respect and maybe even learn something from. Yeah. So... Like in the first season where they get a, what's the guy's name that loves Suki? Um, um, in, you know, the, the the first vampire that we really get to Right, know. who was a Civil War soldier. And yeah. so that's really important, too, the idea that Civil War's not really passed yeah. for a vampire. They experienced it. So And, and he, uh, he'll give a lecture to the uh, Civil War, basically the daughters of the Confederacy group in mm-hmm. town there about it. and. Uh, that'll be a way for them to connect because they yes. love the Civil War and he's got some first-hand stories. So right. And really, um, that show to me does a pretty good job of depicting North Louisiana, um, the redneck part, um, mm-hmm. state, you know, which is not at all like South Louisiana or like New Orleans. It's its own thing. I think we talked about that with Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. But they, do, they aren't just uh, a few people 
from New Orleans sit out in the woods. They're the same thing. It works kind of the way North Louisiana works. Right. And and the idea, too, that North and South Louisiana are in dialogue, are aware of each other, and mm-hmm. define themselves mm-hmm. somewhat in opposition, I think, is important, too. So, yeah, there is – and people often do make the mistake that, New, you know, New Orleans is all of Louisiana, but it is much more complicated, as you point out. Right. It's oh, a drive from Ruston to New Orleans. So. Mm-hmm. Well, or more like a story like that of going up to Boston to study at Harvard Divinity School, and I was right out of TAC, out of Louisiana TAC. <clears throat> so uh-huh. we're talking, a bunch of us fellows are talking there in the dorm, one of the Divinity School dorms about where we're from, and this was the year that the Natchitoches girls, Natchitoches Central girls were nationally ranked, and USA Today had a big deal about them. I think they were ranked maybe number one, but they were somewhere in the top five or six teams in the country on the basketball uh, uh-huh. court. And so this guy asked my friend and me, actually, who teaches down at LSU Alexandria. Now, we were both out of tech, both went to high school together, et cetera, and we are both playing at Harvard. And he says, this neighbor of mine says, so how close are you to New Orleans? And I mean, we would would both, I mean, you could tell he was a tourist, you know. We were the guy off the street, you know. And I told him, I said, you would never go to New Orleans and say New Orleans. I said, because they would laugh you off the street. I said, we're, <laughs> I said it's New Orleans or locals say New Orleans. And I said, we're over 300 miles from New Orleans. I and mean, it's a long way. It's right. it all morning and part of the afternoon to get down there from where we live. I said, we're almost in Arkansas up here in the hill country, and it's culturally very much like South Arkansas. It's really not any different other than the 33rd parallel. Other right. than that, it's so different from South Arkansas. Well, and that's what projects about, you know, like the Louisiana Anthology and also TV and film set in Louisiana, if they're done right, they can educate people and help them, you know, understand that it's a big place and there's lots of different aspects and features. So um, that's a great story, though. How close are y'all? <laughs> we have made a point of including North Louisiana and Central Louisiana in our uh, anthology as well as in our podcast. Because uh, this mm-hmm. stuff's going on, uh, you know, way out here. And we're kind of closer to that anyway, so it's easier for us to scout it out. But, uh, you know, there is some stuff if you start looking for it. You know, like, you know, mm-hmm. power and light, uh, which used to be our power company before Intergy. Anyway, that's also a book. So uh, we talked to the guy. Yeah, John Dufresne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great novel. And, and, and actually, my Divinity School classmate, uh, who was in Alexandria or Pineville, he's the one that found that for Bruce and me and said, hey, have y'all read that thing? Well, at the time, we have not. And he said, y'all got to read it and you've got to get oh. it. Oh. Yeah, he'd read it. He'd picked up a copy of it, I think, in a used bookstore. He said, uh-huh. you've got to get it. And he said, you'll recognize sites and so forth of the of the story because it's that in Washington, Paris, in Monroe. So we got him on the show. Well, that's great. That's you know, it just goes to show how you know all sources come in and can be used and you know sent and communicated to lots of other people because that's you know from word of mouth to a, a podcast. That's a great success story. Bruce and I have lots of scouts. <laughs> this is the way I <laughs> we have really. Well, I'll awesome. try and I'll try and be added to that number and keep my eyes open yeah, for things yeah. I think y'all could do next. Maybe someday they'll make a movie out of Confederacy of Dunces and they can have you back. Oh, that would be great. The plays the plays I've seen, the productions have been really good, but you're right, it would be a, a good movie. Or maybe even a TV show. It's a pretty big book, so you could yeah, probably get a you know, series out of it. The uh, limited series, 
series on HBO, Netflix, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it really yeah. changes the way you can bring a novel to air, you know. Because a movie is basically a short story, uh, like a two-hour movie. That's how much material you can fit in. Yeah. Something big like Game of Thrones, uh, you need the series to do it right. Right. And that's why it's the golden age of TV. And thank heaven, special effects are so good that we can have supernatural TV and it's believable. Mm-hmm. It's not laughable. And so right. this is a good time to be a fan of the supernatural because of the technology. And it's, uh, the re- it's the rebirth of serialized fiction like from the 19th century. We, you know, and I said this on a website just the other day. Like Charles Dickens, I mean, he you know, made his bones, so to speak, in serialized uh, fiction uh, newspapers of the 19th century and before he began to you know, write novels to be, you know, published as a standalone text. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is the great thing that reading is not over. And so people still, if you have a good story to tell, whether you're telling it on a podcast or a TV show or a film or a book, somebody's going to read it and they're going to share it with other people. And so that's, you know, that's what keeps culture going. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Robin. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed talking to the two of you. Thank you for taking the time, and thank you for all the good work you're doing for Louisiana and New Orleans. Well, thank you. And best of luck. Are you planning to uh, go around doing presentations? Yes, and if if all fingers crossed, it'll be out in the month of October, so that's a good month for something about the supernatural. So hopefully October 23, I will be out, you know, promoting the book. So um, if I'm in town, I'll hear you, so... Okay, thank you very much. Thanks so much. You take care. Yeah, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to thank Robin for uh, that chat. And that was really a good talk. Um, I've always, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer, even in um, getting Louisiana out there on TV and movies and stuff like that as a way of, um, you know, letting people know we're here and, you know, burnishing our image. And um, I think it's good. I think we're in the best time for that because back in the day, they would have you on some sound stage in uh, uh, Los Angeles, and uh, you know you wouldn't be anywhere close to Louisiana. You'd never hear a right accent. You get got some stuff that takes some care to uh, portray Louisiana the right way, including shooting the, uh, the shooting the episodes here in... Yeah, location, location. Yeah. There's no substitute for that, you know? There's no substitute. And you think, okay, well, here's some big-time actors, and some of them live in Louisiana, uh, but everybody on the crew and the set and all that, those folks are mostly local. They, they stay here and then they work at that, and it's, a, it's not a... They're not going to get millions of dollars and be a glamorous thing, but they're part of it, and... It's an important uh, part of, uh, you know, our economy now. Uh, so uh, I, I like it for several, you know, a bunch of reasons. And, and frankly, um, you know, uh, entertainment is not as hard on the environment as, uh, you know, uh, digging for oil. So uh, if we're going to put state money somewhere, I'd rather put it here than, you know, you know destroying what's left of the coast. Yeah, it's, it, it to me is a way, like you said, it is a way to get our culture out there and our people out there, but really to draw attention to the basically the dangers that Louisiana faces. I mean, if you saw a map that was posted today, 
it was talking about or showing the various damages that are going to be faced in the you know some of it in the near term uh, for Louisiana in terms of the climate crisis. But people up here should not think that they're proof against that or that they're somehow invulnerable because North Louisiana, particularly here in the Hill Country, is going to face extreme drought. That's coming. It's extreme drought. We've seen we've seen the glimmers of it already. It's going to get worse and it's going to be more extended every year. You know. Well, and so we won't lose landmass. We're getting you know, hurricanes that are strong enough that they can <clears throat> do damage when they pass over Lincoln. Yeah, they'll, they'll make their way inland. That's the whole thing. We're, you know, for, for listeners outside of Louisiana, we're not even close to the coast up here. We're probably a couple hundred miles from the coast. It's a long way. But they're making their way inland. But you know what also makes its way inland is the various pests that go with warmer, more you know, tropical-type weather you get in South Louisiana. Like, for example, these love bugs. Like, for example, right, right, yeah. you know, like, like these um, uh, plant blights, you know, they make their way north, too, like various kind, other kinds of insects. All this stuff is going to migrate north into North Louisiana and South Arkansas and East Texas. It's going to migrate off the Gulf. That's, that's coming. Right. That's not that's right. not speculation by, you know, uh, entomology. Not anymore. No, it's going to happen. It's just, it's, now it's just a matter of time. And it's already happening right. on a small scale now. So we better really get serious about this kind of thing, honestly. Time to get serious with it. Well, for the Louisiana Info Podcast, I'm Rosie McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly do want to thank Robin for coming out this week. And, and again, you know, we mentioned this earlier about media, media theory, media studies. You know, do go read her book. She's also got some other books out there as well, uh, as well as, as Bruce was saying something a second ago, I found another book by LSU Press, who is her publisher, and it's also dealing with some uh, Louisiana topics, in this case, some, some Louisiana politics. So go and check out what Robin has written. You know, go to LSU Press if you're interested in any of their material. Uh, you know, buy it for yourself there. Or go, to, go to your library, see if there's a copy of it. Read this stuff and learn more about, about Louisiana and about the people of Louisiana, too. So thanks again, Robin, for joining us. We also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.